0: Hello, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. It is both Thursday the 20th of June and Friday the 21st of June. Coming to you today, episode 22 of the It's a Monkey podcast, coming to you today from both New York, where I am, and James is in Sydney at the other end of the world, where it's Friday, living in the future. So we're coming to you from yep. Thursday and Friday today.
1: But uh, all kinds of crazy stuff here in the future.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> don't don't spoil the surprise. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we should we should go to a special show one day at the um, at the international dateline.
1: <laughs> Stand on one side.
0: I think there's one there's one set of I islands don't think there or me. something. I, th- I think there's
1: one place that crosses it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, Down to business. Episode 22. We've got a terrific show coming up for you. Speaking of things in the future, we are going to be talking to Professor Joseph Trob, who is a computer science professor at Columbia University here in um, New York. And he's a specialist in um, quantum computing, which um, was in the news recently when Google... Um, actually bought a quantum computer in conjunction with another research institution. So quantum computing is something that gets bounced around a little bit, but no one really knows much about it. So we'll be talking to... Uh, I interviewed him yesterday. We'll be talking to him in a little while. But as usual, we're going to kick off with some news. Um, lots been happening, James, as always in our industry. I mean, I had to when I was looking at the news. Boy, where do we start? Um, so much going on. But... Um, let's uh let's look at the geeky end of things first of all um php 5.5 was released this
2: week
1: yep the latest version of uh of the software that um that we use a lot at uh, manage Flutter and a lot of our products um and yeah it's it's the latest um update in there um in their, their release schedule, and it's, it's got a few um, nice improvements to it. They've done a lot of backend improvements, so it's running a lot faster than, than the old system. Um, it's got a new sort of caching layer, which basically just means things run quicker. Um, and it's also added a new way to uh, encrypt passwords, uh, which is pretty cool. It's basically a, um, uh, it's, it's a just a, a much more secure way uh, by default of encrypting passwords. PHP has a bit of a, a spotty history of um, having some very easily crackable methods of recording passwords, so they've needed this for quite a long time. So hopefully, any website that uses it will you now have a much more default, uh, much more secure um, password system by default.
0: And of course, PHP is really—I mean, the internet is, is, or you know, at least the Internet 2.0 is essentially built on PHP. Everything from Yahoo to Facebook. Um, y- you know, was was really, and, and a lot of the the really core sites were built on PHP at least, uh, to some degree. I know Facebook, um, they they rebuilt parts on lower level languages, etc. But I mean, in, I mean, there's still PHP is still their their scripting front end.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, uh, Facebook, I know, has still got tons of code in PHP and Yahoo is a big proponent of it. Um, Google don't really use it. Twitter don't really use it, but it's still very popular. It's still, um, I think, the leading web technology. Um, Ruby is definitely more popular for sort of startups and, and um, it's kind of in vogue uh, in that sense, but uh, PHP is definitely the workhorse of the web and there's lots of very successful large companies that are using it it scales very well very very predictably
0: um and they and i noticed they said they dropped windows xp support um so of, of course php even though it's an open source and and typically runs on on linux it um does run on windows as well right
1: uh yeah i mean that was a surprise to me that it was actually running on windows xp but yeah obviously obviously it was um Uh, I mean, I'm guessing there must have been some sort of port or something because it wouldn't be the core system that was running on it. But, yeah, obviously, they're no longer supporting whatever branch was running on XP, which kind of makes sense.
0: So um, PHP 5.5 was released. And um, a few weeks ago, also, Facebook uh, Facebook likes to pick and choose um, features of other social media networks and, and uh, copy them. And I noticed one which they've um, implemented a few weeks ago is verified accounts a couple of weeks ago. They've started rolling out verified accounts. I actually first noticed this on Michael Arrington. I follow him on Facebook, um, because he actually blocked me on Twitter, but that's a whole other story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, that's my uh, badge of honor. But um, they have seem to be slowly rolling out verified accounts
1: yeah, it's an interesting, interesting if predictable move, I guess. <laughs> um, I mean, it's kind of surprising that they need to, considering Facebook's all always had a big push for having sort of real names. In any case, but um, yeah, I guess it's quite hard to police that. It's probably much easier to to just give ticks next to names that they know are definitely, definitely the real cele- celebrities. Well, what surprised
0: um, me that is that they called it verified accounts, and they have. This almost the same color and type of tick against the account that Twitter does as well. I yeah, was that that
1: that is very interesting. I noticed that too. It looks it's not it's not the exact same badge, but it looks almost the same. It's 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 a very similar sort of um, icon. I mean,
0: I mean, <laughs> so. they smart people. I mean, my initial thought was like, oh, it's an oversight, and they they don't even realize they're copying. But then I sort of thought, well, maybe maybe that's a cheeky move. I mean, maybe that's a little bit of a cheeky move in that they're trying to get people that, you know, don't live, eat and breathe this type of of thing to actually get a little bit confused as to who they're looking at where.
1: Look, I mean, I think from a product perspective, I mean, if I was in Facebook's position, I'd probably actually do the same thing. Um, I mean, you don't really want to have to reinvent the wheel whenever you do this kind of stuff. And people kind of already have an understanding of the concept of what a verified account means, um, from Twitter and by kind of adopting something that looks pretty similar. Um, it means, you know, they can, they can get the benefits without having to do a whole lot of extra work. Um, so it doesn't feel like, you know, they could have called it, you know, I don't know, company accounts or something and, and use like a star icon instead of a tick, but by using the, the tick you know it's basically it's already in people's heads what it means there's very little sort of cognitive overhead to get that understanding so so you think i'm would, being a, be cons-
0: a conspiracy theorist and that they're trying <laughs> to sort of hijack sort of uh, cognitive type of uh, contexts
1: i think i if yeah look i mean i think it's probably in my opinion it's probably more of a product decision just to make it easier for people to understand and in some, some ways, it's kind of nice to have this kind of standardized concept of what a verified account is. I mean, it's something that um, Google could roll out as well. Actually, Do they have anything of that? On is Google there any Plus. kind of verified? I mean, yeah. Google Miners. Um, Google Miners.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, not, that, uh, not that I'm aware of. I mean, they only rolled out vanity URLs and they rolled out um, company accounts relatively recently. Um, mm. But, yeah, I'm, I'm sure something could be coming. Could, it could be coming. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they go the same way well, yeah no look, fair point. I mean it does make sense if everyone knows it 's a verified account um, but yeah it's interesting to know, to know that they've they've uh they' chose a similar type of um, type of sort of colors and and uh lingo but um the big story well it, it is sort of big in social media uh, moving on but staying in social media of the day is that Instagram video launched today.
1: Yeah, the um the Vine competitor. <laughs> the Vine <laughs>
0: competitor, of course, uh, Twitter launched Vine which is takes the 6 seconds video clip. They released it for Android um a few weeks ago. I'm pretty frustrated because it doesn't work with my version of Android. I think I've got a pretty old version of Android. Um doesn't seem to to like it. Um uh, but it's on Vine, it's on iOS. And of course, uh, they they managed to keep this pretty much under wraps. Instagram it sort of came a little bit from nowhere. I mean, the room there weren't really very many big rumors, but um, there was a, a live media a media release out of Palo Alto today, and they uh, Kevin Systrom, the, co- the co-founder, um, launched Instagram for video. I mean, what's interesting. James is the comparison between Instagram and Vine. I've got a little chart from TechCrunch here, which we'll just talk through just some of the main comparisons. Um, Instagram video, um, 15 seconds versus Vine, six seconds. That's interesting that they, they decided to go uh, uh, a longer length, but interestingly, they, they, they don't on Instagram loop. They don't offer the loop.
1: Oh, okay, that's interesting.
0: So, yeah, they're taking a different type of... They're taking a different angle to the Vine one. Um, Instagram's also got filters. Vine doesn't have any filters. Um, It's got image stabilization on Instagram video. Actually, Vine's got image stabilization. Actually, no, it doesn't. Vine doesn't have image stabilization. I stand corrected. But Instagram video does. And what other big differences do they have there? Um, just the looping on Vine, yes. No on Instagram. Um, it's not embeddable on Instagram, but it is embeddable on Vine. Um, and that's, that's that about it. That seems like a
1: weird one. As yeah, but I I think, I look,
0: embedd- look, I think Instagram has, I mean, even on the photo side of things, it's always been hard to do anything with the Instagram photos besides on Instagram. Their website took ages to get up. I haven't even managed to use it. So it's somehow they've. that's just you know has never been sort of part of their dna
1: Mm, yeah that's that's a good point yeah they're not really interested with the web integration it's all about what they can do on mobile
0: yeah so look i'm pretty excited i believe it is um they are rolling it out um in stages apparently instagram video i try to update my instagram it hasn't come through but it's technically live apparently i don't know did you try to update your instagram
1: no i mean i don't i haven't used instagram in months so i haven't um i wouldn't even know if it was different
0: yeah so anyway i'll, I'll try have a have a play with it i think i'm going to have to buy a new android phone because it might also not work on my android i think my android's about two and a half years old and somehow because they custom android versions they don't even though they update they don't really completely update
1: um, uh yep. yep.
0: which is which is sort of frustrating and defeats the purpose but um, anyway, that's the way.
1: Move to an iPhone, and then you never have that problem. There's no. no then you just have to. one have to, operating system.
0: Then you just have to buy new phones.
1: <laughs> well, my uh, my three GS, my good old three GS, is finally um, ending, uh, getting to the end of its release life because the next version of um, iOS, iOS five, isn't gonna work on it, unfortunately. But um, it's lasted me pretty well. I think I've had it for what did it is four years or something like that now. Yeah, that's a good. So. That's a good run. Yeah. It's a what, good
0: run. what do you think of the new iOS? I haven't. I look. had a chance to look at it in detail.
1: Um, look, it's really hard to know until I sort of see it in person. I mean, it's a very different take. Um, on the one hand, it probably isn't as impressive as a lot of the things they've done. They've they've definitely gone towards um, the flatter UI that um, that Microsoft have championed, and lots of websites are kind of moving towards. Um, And, you know, some people like that, some people don't. I mean, I I personally quite like it when I saw it initially, but the more I think about it, the less I think it feels like it has personality, if that makes sense. It kind of feels a bit more sterile. um, And I think it's going to be hard for them to combat that. So, Um, and there's not a whole lot in the way of new features. I mean, lots of these problems have kind of already been solved and it's almost just sort of slapping, you know, paint on top of the old system as opposed to doing anything brand new. So... Oh, yeah, I don't think it's that exciting, but yeah, it'll still be interesting.
0: I I don't know why they um, you know the the the, the form they they don't experiment more with the form of uh, of the phones like a, a small iPhone, you know. Yeah, um, that's a good point.
1: Yeah, iPhone Nano.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm quite I, you know they obviously have their reasons et cetera, But it's I'm surprised all the companies are going big and. Um, mm. And 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 I'm surprised they also um, don't um, they don't stylize their phones better. There's a real opportunity to have uh, you know th- they've become so central to day to day life that people would love and and that's where iPhone has succeeded and was the first one. They they there was beautiful and there's beautiful workmanship in an iPhone, but I, mm-hmm. I feel that there's opportunity for for more phones with different type of workmanship that's you know aspirational, that are premium, that maybe have different materials like wood it's obviously mm. um, not an d- easy thing to do perhaps unless I'm just you know I, I don't know I'm seeing something that they don't seeing, but I, I it's the same with keyboards and and with screens and computer boxes I'm just always amazed that there haven't been you know there's not more creative options available
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, the other thing is with the, these mobile operating systems as well, they've become so cluttered. So much stuff has kind of been put onto phones. They do so many things these days, you know, their cameras, their video players, their email client. There's so much stuff that, um, that they're just like huge computing devices and there's, there's very little clarity in them. They're just trying to pack so many things into one little package. Um, it seems like they almost become too crowded or too complex something is almost like they were really great when they first came out because they they had this simplicity to them but um you know that doesn't seem to exist anymore
0: and i think that's the that's always the challenge i mean even in the products that we work on you know there's feature creep and 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 the temptation is to throw more things in and it's it's hard to know what to leave out and you do over time start to to lose the simplicity over that Okay. yeah definitely and and that's 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 where the challenge is and that's where i think twitter has succeeded in keeping it relatively simple um interestingly s- on twitter they've released some sort of tweet analytics to everybody uh, where you can follow tr- uh, your engagements and retweets i actually haven't had a chance how to play with it yet is it of any use
1: this is twitter, twitter twitter's yeah. uh Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. They've, um, they've kind of got a timeline of how many people followed you each day and also kind of a timeline of, um, your tweets that received the most engagement, the most retweets, which, which is kind of interesting. And they sort of highlight, um, the best tweets. So it's quite nice, I guess, to kind of look through your tweet history and, and see what's resonating with the audience. Um, so it's got, it's got quite a bit of value and it's definitely using data that they have and nobody else has. Um, so, d- yeah, it is kind of interesting.
0: I have to say, I hear um, wandering around the streets of New York, the, w- the nice thing about New York is that it's so loud, so everyone's screaming to each other the whole time to be heard, so you get to hear uh, everyone's conversations. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, and Tumblr, Tumblr gets spoken about a lot more in New York. I mean, it's a New York uh, born and bred company, and you know, that might have, uh, that always has something to do with it. But I definitely hear Tumblr referred to a lot more in New York than in Sydney.
1: Mm, interesting.
0: So that is interesting. Anyway, you're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on episode number 22 of the It's a Monkey podcast. James, I think there are enough podcasts now that if someone wanted to, they could probably have a 24-hour marathon of our podcasts.
1: Yeah, they could. Yeah, if that's if that's what they're into.
0: Hey, if they do it <laughs> for charity and, you know, we'll even throw in a few bucks and sponsor them <laughs> and so... Every now and then I get a tweet from someone saying, Oh, you know, I discovered your podcast and I'm I'm listening to your old shows and that's that's kind of flattering.
1: Yeah, yeah. We we definitely have some people listening. One or two.
0: One or two, no. We and, and if you are listening, please tweet us, please email us, please find us. Um we'd love to hear from you all over the world. Um we we promote this out on our main Twitter account which has has people um all over the world, so drop us a line. We will be going to a short break, and after the break, um, we'll be talking to Professor Joseph Trob, who is a professor of computer science at Columbia University, and uh, we spoke to him, I spoke to him uh, earlier this week about um, quantum computing, so stay with us.
2: The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by... Check Dog. Use Check Dog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. Check Dog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content Error-free.
0: You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. As mentioned, I am coming to you live or um, pre-recorded live from New York City, the one and only New York City. Um, beautiful day here. Now... There was a story that I picked up a few weeks ago in the press that Google, in conjunction with research facility, has bought something called a quantum computer. Now, co- quantum computing is something that has popped up every now and then. It's one of these these mystical, esoteric um, um, sides of the of the computing world that I personally don't know much about. And I got quite intrigued by doing a little bit of research about quantum computing. I believe it is only the second computer quantum computer ever to be to be purchased by a company um and it's uh, there's only one company that's providing commercially um, available in a sense quantum computing called d-wave out of canada so i thought it would be an appropriate time to actually dig deeper unpack this um, type of computing called quantum computing um, and on the end of uh, my Skype line I'm happy to say I've, I've got professor Joseph Traub who's the professor of computer science at Columbia University in New York City um, with a research interest in um, quantum computer and also an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico Professor Traub or Joe, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast.
2: Joe will do, and let me try to demystify quantum computing. But let me start with some background. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with Moore's Law. Of
0: course, that's that's where processing power will double about every 18 months.
2: Exactly. Uh, Gordon Moore, co-founder of Intel Corporation, uh, empirically noticed in the mid-60s uh, the number of transistors on a chip was doubling every 18 months and this would have profound consequences if that exponential growth continued, and it has so from the mid-60s to 2013 you can do the subtraction, uh, so that's the reason your cell phone has the power that a supercomputer would have had 20 or 30 years ago. So your cell phone has the power um, that, say, the fastest computer at the CIA or General Motors might have had 20 or 30 years ago. But that's ending for a number of reasons. And some people say it actually ended in 2014. That if you had just a uniprocessor running because of heat problems, you couldn't run it at full speed. So Moore's law actually has already ended. And if it hasn't ended, it will because we're against basic physical limits and also limits on design, limits on the cost of fab facilities. So what we're doing in the interim is multi cores, putting a bunch of processors. In the computer many cores meaning more processors um, and massive parallelism
0: and, and, meaning, and joe if i can just interject it for a moment of course this is um moore's law and and the computing you're talking about is known as conventional computing, classical classical computing bits and bytes zeros and ones electrical current either on or off
2: exactly uh so i'm going to lead up in about a minute to, to quantum computing what's driving it The National Research Council, National Research Council of our National Academy of Sciences, issued a report a year or two ago, saying for the next say five or ten years, uh, will massive parallelism is what we'll have. So many, many thousands of processors. Or even hundreds of thousands uh, faster supercomputers from China and the United States, for example, have hundreds of thousands of processors. But there are problems with uh, massive parallelism. Um, it's difficult, they're difficult to program. But for some problems, you can't decompose them for parallel computing. So what are we going to do, say, in 10, 20, 30 years, can we stay on this exponential trajectory? And there are various exotic new technologies, DNA computing, molecular computing. And the one I chose, because it's such a sexy subject, is quantum computing. I've always been fascinated by quantum computing because it's so counterintuitive. Um, Richard Feynman, one of the great physicists of the 20th century, uh, published a paper in 1982 saying... We might need a quantum computer to solve the problems of quantum mechanics, which is really all of much of modern chemistry and physics is based on um, quantum mechanics. Uh, that was a the theoretical idea, but what really got interest going was in 1994 when Peter Shaw, that's S H O R, I pronounced that in a funny way because I grew up in New York, mm-hmm. uh, but his, his, his name is S-H-O-R, and um, he he showed that you could factor very large numbers on a quantum computer very fast. Now, why would anybody want to factor large numbers? I assume you really know what I mean by factor. You have a number, say, sure. with hundreds of bits, and you want to find see if they can be decomposed into uh, uh, some products. And it's easy, given two numbers, to form their product, but it's believed difficult on a classical computer to factor them. And that's the basis of much of the protection of banks, et cetera. For instance, the RSA uh, Corporation is is based on this idea of difficulty. Now, nobody's actually proven that the fastest algorithms on a classical computer are exponentially hard in the number of bits. Uh, One of the great open problems is prove that there cannot be polynomial time algorithm for factorization. So that's an open question, but most people believe you can't do it fast on a quantum computer. Right. Fast means in polynomial time in the number of bits. So Shore showed sure that you could do it in polynomial time. That caused a huge amount of interest because that's the way we protect our banks, we protect our messages, etc., uh, because we believe this, is, this problem is difficult. Um, now... I actually work on what Dick Feynman suggested, which is tackling the problems of quantum chemistry and quantum physics on a quantum computer. So for example, as you know, uh, the evolution of a quantum system is governed by the Schrodinger equation, and we've shown that to solve the Schrodinger equation, or more specifically, compute the ground state energy, fast using a quantum computer. Uh, Now I should warn you, I'm a theoretician. So what I'm interested in is algorithms, meaning methods for solving problems, and computational complexity, which which means what's the intrinsic difficulty of a mathematically posed problem. But an important issue which you actually started with when you talked about D-Wave is, can we build quantum computers? now there's some I'll, I'll turn to D-wave in just a minute um, there are certain impediments to building quantum computers Well, what I One
0: found, is- sorry to interject for a moment but what I found what I found interesting is in the in actually looking at the photo of that D-wave computer is that it's got quite unusual pieces that um, have to be cooled to absolute zero or or close to absolute zero of minus 273 or or Celsius or something like that?
2: Actually, 20, and this is amazing. It's around, I visited D-Wave in Vancouver, and Jordy Rose was kind enough to show me around. And as I remember, the machine he was showing me had to be cooled to 20 milli Kelvin which I find amazing, yes, exactly what you said.
0: That, that must require a huge amount of power or something very smart that does that. So, smart technology. Well, lots of
2: power to, to cool to close to absolute zero. So what are the impediments, before I turn to D-Wave, one more sure. comment, which is can we build quantum computers? And if the impediments are enough qubits, quantum bits, a counterpart of classical bits, except in a quantum bit, you can have zeros and ones simultaneously. Um, and decoherence, which means a quantum, when you measure a quantum system, it turns classical. A quantum computer sitting in an environment thinks it's being measured and will decohere and not be a quantum system anymore and be useful to you. So very serious problems. Furthermore, you've got to do error correction, which requires still more qubits. There are different attacks like topological computing uh, for trying to get around that. But l- let me let me turn to D-Wave. Uh, there's been some controversy, some people saying, hey, this is not a general purpose quantum computer. Other people saying, there's not a quantum computer because it doesn't have entanglement, it doesn't have certain properties. Uh, I'm pragmatic. So, my question is can, can the D Wave computer solve problems we really care about faster than a uh, classical computer? And somebody's done a study. In fact, I'm going to be at Microsoft in the middle of July where this person is giving a, a talk on tests that have been done on the D Wave computer. Um, so I don't really care so much. Is D-Wave computer is it or is it not a quantum computer? Uh, but can it solve interesting problems fast? I saw. It's, it's a spe- sorry, I'm sorry, Kevin. Go ahead. S-
0: sorry, Joe. I saw some some uh, different studies that write some of these uh, complex tasks um, that the, the the quantum computers solving them anywhere between 3000 and 50000 times faster than conventional computers i mean that is that is an astounding difference
2: yeah and that's exactly the study i was referring to however there are people who say i'll t- i'll tell you the other side of this argument In fact, I'm fascinated by D-Wave, and I actually hope that my students and I will have access to a D-Wave machine. I should uh, say that uh, Lockheed Martin was actually the first company to buy a D-Wave machine, and it's installed at ISI, which is part of USC in the uh, Los Angeles area, and we hope to have access to, to that computer and run our own experiments. People who criticize this work And again, I will hear the author in the middle of July uh, say, well, this is especially tuned. If we tuned the classical computer to solve this specific problem, uh, we could also do it fast. So I am a, um, uh, uh, what's the right word? Um, I'm open. I, I have no firm convictions on this. I think it's very interesting what they've done. What's, um, as
0: a matter of interest, what would a D-Wave computer cost? Are you talking about tens or hundreds of millions? Or?
2: I believe this is public information that Lockheed Martin paid $11.5 million. $11.5 million.
0: Wow, that's yeah. a little bit more expensive than your MacBook Pro.
2: Yeah, but it's, um, your MacBook, MacBook Pro wouldn't have to be cooled to uh, 20 millikelvins. And, uh, other other things. But hey, if you have 11.5 million lying around, I have a bridge to sell you.
0: It's the ultimate geek toy for a Silicon Valley exactly. billionaire.
2: Now, coming back to quantum, so their argument is the D Wave computer, a quantum computer, or not? I don't really care. Uh, there are a lot of countries, including your country, that interest interested. It's created a huge stir. So Canada has a huge effort. They They have said, Hey, we're a relatively poor country, we can't be good in everything, let's be good in nanotechnology and in quantum computing. The United States has major effort, uh, much of it is secret, much of it is at the NSA, and we, we don't exactly know what's, what's being done there, but DARPA's funding research, a bunch of American universities, national efforts in Australia, as I mentioned, in Austria, uh, in Japan, I'm sure China has uh, a major push. I once heard a quote from the director of the opera, a man named, uh, um, uh, I'm blanking out his name. It doesn't really matter. Anyway, he, he was asked, what, what do you really worry about? And he said, I worry that I wake up and hear that China has a quantum computer and we don't. Now, I don't know if he really said that, but that's that's the quote. There's been a huge interest, I think partially. I looked this morning in preparation for talking to you, and I Googled um, how many hits I would get if I put quantum computing in quotes. So presumably I'm really getting quantum computing. I got 1,450,000 hits. There definitely
0: okay. seems to be a slight tipping point, and what what I find interesting, Joe, is that, of course, when IBM started, um, they stated that um, you know perhaps only five percent of um, the world—I don't know if that was companies or people—would you know a computer would be relevant to only five percent of the people, or, or purchasing a computer would be only relevant to five percent uh, of of people in the world. And of course, look at look at what's happened, and could could. We be in a similar the beginnings of a, a, a of a part in the pun a quantum shift in um, you know disrupting the the, the the business and personal computer market. I know even in Australia the university one of the universities in Australia last year said that quantum computer uh, computers could be available commercially within um, five to ten years i 'm not sure if they meant consumer level type products or, or business or, or only the high end but uh, are we at the beginning of something very um, um, you know, a big, a big shift.
2: I'm going to disappoint you by saying I don't know. They are really, it's very interesting from a the theoretical point of view, no doubt. It really caused a huge amount of interest. Again, in quantum mechanics, um, the issue is: can we build them? Uh, for and they're impediments for the reason I gave. And furthermore, will they be general-purpose computers or will they be special-purpose? So they do. An important special task, such as factoring large numbers, don't know that. That's the wonderful thing about research: is to most questions you can ask me, I'll have to say I don't know. That's what makes life interesting.
0: Of course, and. Why do you think Google bought the computer? I mean, um, of course, optimization problems. It seems like that's what co- where con- quantum computers really shine. And when people type in something into this in the Google search box, one of the things that Google does it provides a recommended search, which is essentially an optimization or machine learning. Type problems. So Google already do does machine learning type problems. Do you think they have anything specific, any specific problems they'd like to solve or get better at that they that they feel quantum computers could assist them with and beat their competition?
2: I've got lots of friends, including some at the senior levels of Google, I visit the Googleplex every couple of years when I'm in the in Northern California because the vibrations are so great. Also in New York. But um, I would have to ask somebody at Google. I don't have any inside knowledge of what they plan to use their quantum computer for.
0: I mean, uh, okay. oh,
2: I shouldn't say the quantum computer, the D wave computer. And as I said, there are people who say, well, that's not really a quantum computer. And I, I already said earlier, I don't care. Uh,
0: I mean, uh, is quantum computing and classical computing. Um, are they, for lack of a better phrase, in a sense, um, mutually exclusive, or is, or, or, or do they actually work together to augment the effic- efficacy of each other?
2: I mean, can do, you, you, we can imagine hybrid, right? The classical computer can do what it does. The quantum computer does what it does. Yeah, absolutely. Yes.
0: So, in theory, you could have. Uh, Say in five years' time, a MacBook Pro with a fantastic um, screen, where perhaps this, all the screen technology, all the display, is powered by quantum computing, but everything else is classical computing.
2: I'm going to, I'm going to again disappoint you and say, I'd be amazed. I would put significant money on the fact that the MacBook Pro will not be using quantum computing. It, it's, if we get it at all, I. I think it will start at the very high end.
0: Wow. Well, um, you, you, you're a brave man to, to to put significant money on something like that in a in an industry that changes so fast.
2: Well, quite uh, significant? I'm, I'd be <laughs> willing to put, say, a, an Australian pound. How's that? Uh, or Australia? some multiple of Australian pounds. Used pounds, right?
0: Dollars, yeah. Australian. Oh, yeah,
2: Australian dollars. Yeah, right. I uh, should know I was, that.
0: Our dollar's been weakening, um, so but uh, maybe, maybe if we had a, a access to the D-Wave computer, we could do some um, interesting predictions and scenario analysis to see where the dollar's going to head.
2: I'm sorry to hear that because I've got some money invested in Australian bonds, and I am sorry to hear that the Australian dollar is weakening.
0: I'd be interested to see what the dollar has. I know uh, the Fed in the U.S. today made some big announcements that I think uh, they're not going to change much, and they're quite happy with the way the economy is running. So I'd be interested to see um, if the U.S. dollar has has even strengthened even further on on the Australian dollar.
2: Well, I was watching. I was actually riding a recumbent bike for exercise and watching Bernanke make this announcement, which sounded like it would be very good news for Wall Street. That we were going, He was not going to raise uh, rates, and he was going to keep on asset purchasing. And the markets, all of them, U.S. markets, dropped like a stone. Everything was down, uh, which shows why I'm not a good investor. I mean, it looked to me like it was very positive news. Well, probably tomorrow will bounce back. But immediately, as he was talking, the Dow went down about 150 points.
0: Yeah, it's quite quite interesting that markets we still, um, with with all our um, computing power and, and insights, they they still don't act in predictable ways.
2: Uh, well, for some some people seem to like um, Professor Simon's. The Renaissance Fund seems to be able to outperform the market. Some hedge funds do, but uh, yes, it's very mysterious. A lot of it, of course, is psychology as you know.
0: Psychology, and of course there's a lot of controversy about inside information and access yes. to data, and, and so the, the markets are not, not particularly imperfect. Um, anyway, we digress slightly, but um, what, so the future in the next two to three years with quantum computing, Joe, what, where do you see it heading, how do you see it affecting the person, um, the, the average person working on a day job or in a small business, if at all?
2: I think it's a fascinating area uh... quantum mechanics is you know is so mysterious uh, some one of the founders said, If you think you understand quantum mechanics, you may be missing something. I may be misquoting, but roughly that idea um, and I don't think it's going to affect the person on the street unless there's an amazing breakthrough where somebody can which I don't know if that'll happen. Somebody really built a quantum computer and can crack um, crypto codes. Uh, But it's a fascinating area to watch.
0: How come companies like Intel and um, Apple, would they not have an interest in in being on the next wave, or not even Apple so much as perhaps Motorola, who supplied some of the chips in the old days, and and Intel and um, all the chip manufacturers, would they not have an interest in getting in early on the bandwagon?
2: Well, I think... You'll, if you look at the at the world uh, on this, most of the funding is being done by governments because they're willing to have uh, long long range views. Right, so I mentioned a bunch of countries with major investments, companies. And that's in fact an argument uh, that my colleagues and I make is that's why we need funding from the government for doing basic research companies which have to show return to their owners that is the shareholders on a relatively short-term basis don't t- tend not to do n- tend not to jump in until they can clearly see the return now IBM is so successful that it is able it is involved in quantum computing in factors interesting joint work between Yale, Yale and IBM but I think IBM is one of the exceptions. But most companies would rather wait and see how things, how things are further along before investing.
0: I mean, if I was Tim Cook and I've got more money than I know what to do with and more money than most governments in the world, um, it would be quite an interesting area if you could capitalize on something very very groundbreaking, even in a in a minor way. Um, there's there's even greater profits to be had, and uh, sure, it's at the risky end of 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 the portfolio. But um, I'm still a little bit surprised. Maybe it's still way too speculative and way too experimental for for comfort for
2: them. I think you've got the basis of a bestseller, and maybe uh, you can sell movie rights also. And how do you know that private individuals are not actually doing this? How do you know the mafia or whoever? Isn't actually doing this very quietly.
0: Yeah. Well, then we get into all the. the hey,
2: we talk. should. Shall we? Shall we write a book together about this? i
0: i I'd, I'd be interested, Professor um, Joe. You, you've been in the uh, computer scientist for for some time, and no doubt the the industry has, and your your area, your discourse, and your your academic interest of computer science has become so much more. Mainstream. Um, how do you feel about um, the, the the future of computing and society, and computing in general? Just, I'm just interested as someone who's really been involved um, for some time, um, right at the forefront of what's happening.
2: That question raises, you know, all sorts of thoughts. I actually got hooked on computing in 1955 and um, did my PhD thesis on a 2,000-word drum memory machine uh, on computational uh, quantum mechanics, actually. And nobody, if I said I worked in computers, people would say, oh, well, my um, my cousin is an accountant. They would have no idea. That all changed in the 70s with the advent of the personal computer. And today, as you know, it's totally transformed everything. Now, there are concerns. Will this lead to persistent unemployment, for example? Some people are worried about that. Will more and more, not only clerical tasks, but even uh, tasks of um, high-level tasks be turned over to computers don't know. So far, computers have created more jobs than we've lost, but some people believe the current high unemployment is actually here to stay because of technology. So we live in interesting times.
0: And the concept of um, the singularity and, and technology becoming, you know, technology waking up, um, eventually, if, if every two years, and perhaps with quantum computing one day even faster, te- technology and, and brain power of the technology is, in, is increasing, um, do you think technology can wake up and obtain consciousness?
2: Uh, I have a lot of respect for Ray Kurzweil, who came up with this notion of the singularity. Um, which is when the computers will be smarter than we are, but I think he overlooks some things. In his original book, which I think he's changed his mind, he said it's not just exponential growth with an, see, it's exponential of an exponential, fiber exponential, he's backed off that, but he's overlooking the difficulties of software, of the algorithms. I'm, on the one hand, my, my wife is Pamela McCordock, wrote a cult book, Called machines who think. In 1979, about the um, science, about the intellectual and social implications of artificial intelligence, which is a fascinating area. Uh, we've learned, by the way, that problems we thought were a measure of in- human intelligence, like chess, are really easy. So for a computer, so easy that humans don't play computers anymore at the world level. But other things like speech and Understanding the social setting are very difficult for computers. I'm not convinced about this singularity. As as I say, I have a lot of respect for uh, Ray Kurzweil. He's a very smart man.
0: I think a lot of people would have breathed a sigh of relief. I know um, we've got um some. our accountant and bookkeeper is uh, well into his 70s and he, he has a love-hate relationship with technology and every time I talk to him about the singularity, he, he shivers in his boots. It seems a, a world away from, from where he grew up. But um, Professor Joseph Traub, I um, really appreciate your, your time today, Professor of Computer Science at Columbia University in New York um, and the external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Really enjoy talking with you. I'd love to touch base about quantum computing um, again sometime in the future, hopefully when there's some nice breakthrough developments.
2: Thanks so much for your excellent questions. It's really been fun to talk to you.
0: Appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Th- thank you. Bye-bye.
2: The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back. Find new people to follow. Track keywords on Twitter and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code monkey2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month
0: free Budgie account. James, you know, when I was researching um, Professor Traub, I insisted I call him Joe, which is pretty um, humble of him. Um, mm. I, li- I like calling professors professor, though. Makes me feel like I'm talking <laughs> to someone very smart, and he's making time for me, you know. But um, uh, on his Wikipedia entry, he is one of the, you know he's got a list of about God, I don't know 20, 30 things there, um, and one of his honors and distinctions is he's the founding editor in chief of the Journal of Complexity. Now, <laughs> I think quite a,
1: quite a nice thing to have.
0: It's quite a. That's quite a nice. When I saw that, it's like, yeah, you know, it's um, you've got to be a special person to be, uh, you know, most people aim for simplicity, but he, he clearly likes the complexity. So um, I, I know you're a physicist, you know, or uh, we'll, we'll call you a physicist, but um, so you, I mean, this is more your world than my world.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, when I was in uh, when I did my physics degree um, in the last year, I think the first half of the last year, I actually worked with the um, quantum computing department. I was actually doing research with them. Um, I think this was back when um, it was. It, I think it was like just before that uh, had that actually created a. Oh, no, they, they just created, I think like a prototype of the very earliest quantum computer and they could do it with, I think it was like one state at a time. So they could kind of have one state communicating. Um, so it was almost like the very first transistor, I guess, of being created in, in that sense for quantum computers. Um, so yeah, no, I do, I do have a bit of understanding. Um, I mean, I didn't to be totally honest, I didn't totally understand what I was doing while I was there. But I think
0: that's the whole point. I mean, that's what he said at the end. If you think you understand quantum computing, then what was it? Then you you don't get it or something you like that. You don't get it, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, it's a very it's a very messy area. It's much, it's, it's completely different uh, type of thing to, to traditional computing. Um, I mean, look, I mean, I, I was very interested in quantum computing before I started working on it. Um I and mean, I think I don't know if that doesn't sound very good, but um, I mean, I guess what I mean by that is it definitely solves problems that um, we can't easily solve currently. But it's not—it's um, kind of not like it's not the same thing as before there were computers, and now there are computers. It's kind of more like um, I don't know—it's very hard to describe. But there's it's more like there's like a going
0: very from a, like like a like a biplane to a jumbo jet, as opposed to yeah, walking uh, to flying time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, kind of like that. I mean, it's not quantum computers aren't faster, which is like that's not that's not the thing that they provide. They basically provide um, well. I mean, it, they could be faster, but that isn't that isn't the, the point necessarily of quantum computers. It's that they they solve a different set of problems. Um, so there are certain things that you you can't do with traditional computers that you can do with quantum computers. There's sort of a range of problems you can solve, um, and. And I mean, there's, there's a limitation of traditional computers. There's a set of problems, um, uh, which are um, uh, very difficult to, to solve, particularly ones that have lots of alternate things you need to compute at once. So things that are kind of like physical simulations or um, things to do with um, uh, security. So encryption, that kind of stuff um, is quite time consuming in computers and in traditional computers. And so quantum computers, um, uh, can provide a very different take on that problem. Um, so yeah, I mean, it would definitely be interesting what they, what impact they have. I mean, there's a whole range of things they could end up doing. I mean, as, as, um, Joe, <laughs> professor Joe <laughs> said, um, uh, it's, it's, it's it's unlikely we're going to have them in our in our individual devices, but they may be used in some sense. I mean, it could be a situation where there's kind of like a whole central bank of quantum computers, and we kind of just farm off little compute computing time from our mobile phones to them or something. Um, I mean, the kind of problems they'll be solving are things to do with security. Um, I mean, it could come that all of our existing encryption software is suddenly obsolete once these things sort of hit. Uh, mass production and we have the right algorithms in them so there is that element that could sort of have major impacts um but yeah it's it's really hard to know it's it's a very it's very interesting era it's very unlike uh traditional computing so yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's... i don't understand it totally but
0: <laughs> look and uh if you're listening to the show i can tell you james is james is one of the smartest people i know and uh, if he can't get his head around it i don't, I don't feel <laughs> too bad i have to be honest during Professor Joe's uh, um, you know, interview, there, w- there were uh, especially the, uh, the, the quanta bits and all of that, I sort of, I sort of got a bit lost. But it's, it's quite an intriguing area. And I'm quite interested that physically the machine is, is um, running at near Kelvin, which is like minus 270 or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's it's very it's a very interesting device that they have. Um, yeah, in fact, I'm was for this. Uh, I was I was just recently reading up about them, and it's amazing how far they've come. Um, I mean, those commercial quantum computers. I think they have uh, 128 um, uh, quantum states in them. So essentially, kind of 128 transistors, which is huge because they they used to not be able to do back when I was doing it years ago. They could only have sort of one, and there was no kind of way to connect them or do anything with them with them. So, um. Yeah, that they've definitely they've definitely made a lot of progress. So I mean, it's it's definitely in the ramp up phase. So you know, in the next couple of years, we could be seeing you know some genuine commercial breakthroughs here.
0: But bad news for you, the professor is not sold on the singularity.
1: Ah. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. <laughs> I don't really want to die right now, so. <laughs> well,
0: it doesn't necessarily mean death, but I mean, uh, you know, I mean. Yeah. Look, I, I actually, with with all you know, genuine respect to him, because he's a professor of computer science, and I'm just a scrappy sort of startup guy. I, 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 I've, I don't know how we can avoid machines waking up one day. It just, just the compounding nature of it is is just just that alone, you know. unless unless our uh, processing power really does, unless Moore's law really does hit a wall and nothing replaces it. But if the the compounding upon compounding keeps on happening and humans are only evolving infinitesimally, something's got to give somewhere, I feel.
1: Well, it's interesting you talk about Moore's Law because we've actually already hit a point where, um, I mean, we have enough computational power in the world to simulate a human brain. Um, You know, we've just kind of recently I think it's the number of transistors in the world or something is, you know, larger than the human brain or something to that effect. There's some, something where we can do. So we definitely will hit a point where, where practically we can simulate something like this. Um, so it's almost just a case of software in some sense. We just don't really understand the, the, the technicalities of how the brain runs and how we can simulate that. So um, look, I'm, not, I'm, I'm still 100% positive it will happen. I just, whether it's our lifetimes or not and what the outcome will be is still, still up in the air.
0: If you extrapolate the last twenty years into the next twenty years, you know, um, I, I don't even think we can conceptualise. You know, everything that we take for granted—emailing yeah. videos around, and collaborative consumption, and and you know, supercomputers in our phones, and all sorts of things.
1: Um, yeah, I just want my holograms and uh, and personal flying cars. If I get those, I'm happy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. Not ex- exactly sure quite, quite what I want. I think it's I think it's definitely um, definitely tied into health and longevity and dying really quickly, in in without any suffering. But um, anyway, we we. I'll, well, there's I'll plenty
1: of ways you can die quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but I know what you mean. <laughs>
0: I almost said immortality, but there's a great Greek... I think it's a Greek or Roman mythology about um, one of the gods that was uh, immortal and now he begs to be killed eventually. Mm. Yeah. You know, because it's a, he, starts, he starts going mad, but...
1: because um, curse.
0: Anyway, we, we digress. You've been listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on episode number 22 on the It's a Monkey podcast. Every second Friday we are keeping up on our podcasts religiously. So if it's Friday in your part of the country, uh, in part of the world, just remember to hop onto uh, it's a monkeycom or please subscribe on iTunes as well. If you are listening on iTunes, pop onto the website, leave a comment, stay in touch with us. Um, if you enjoy it, tell someone and tell us as well. Um, we'll probably be talking about collaborative consumption in a couple of weeks, speaking to an expert in that area. That's everything to do with Airbnb and car sharing. And uh, I think it's a really exciting area. And um, until then, thanks for joining us from New York and Sydney.
1: Have a good one.